We call it Playing Politics with the Star Tribune. John and Scott are with us on the Centerpoint Energy Home Service Plus Hotline. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. John, I'll start with you. We are seeing the the national debate continue, and I'll get to the president here in a second when he's declaring himself a king earlier in the week. But let's talk about Minnesota, how it's playing out. And Governor Walls, and we still have the May 14th, we have the emergency declaration about nine days after that. We have witnessed more pushback from Republicans. Um, sometimes it's hard to pinpoint exactly the specifics of of what they want to change and how they want to enact uh, modifications. So we have greater freedom and we don't judge it just as one state. We can make different decisions. How do you think this is going to play out in the next 10 days or so with the Republicans seemingly starting to get more and more frustrated? The pressure will continue, if not increase, but Governor Walls will preempt some of that by the announcement that has been made regarding Mayo Clinic and the testing and his strong desire to get the state moving again. He's made it quite clear, and it's perfectly understandable and natural that as a citizen of Minnesota and as a governor of the state, he doesn't want to see it indefinitely locked down and the economy cratering the way that it is across the country. And to some degree, the criticism comes because of the aggressive, Minnesota's aggressive mitigation measures that they have taken with the coronavirus pandemic in that we have had the lowest case rate per capita across the country. And that kind of leads some to say, you know, we can move forward now. We can be more aggressive on opening business when the reality is, is the reason that those numbers are so relatively positive, although tragically, of course, we've already had many deaths because of COVID-19. The reason is because um, those measures have been taken. Social distancing has taken hold and they've been able in today's pandemic parlance to flatten the curve and be able to control this at this time. So there will be an eventual, probably slow opening of the economy, but I think that you know that's something that Governor Walls, as well as his opponent, political opponents, want as well. So Scott, let, let's let's turn the calendar ahead two weeks. You have more reporting from CNN today suggesting they believe the president is locked in on May first. Now, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because you saw some reporting for a number of days where the president was locked in on Easter and and he moved that back. But let's say we see the president with a declaration where he's now uh, vigorously encouraging states to open up. I think then the Republicans are going to need to be ready with some really specific areas to say we should do this as a, as opposed to just the broad idea we can make these judgments. We can be respectful. Let's open it up. Right. I think I think that's true, Chad. And I think that the pressure will build not just from Republicans if the president sticks with that May 1st deadline. I, I think there are plenty of Democrats and certainly business owners and employees who are furloughed, unemployed, had their pay cut, who want to get back to work. So uh, with every day that passes here, the frustration level grows. And I, I don't think it's a all, all on the on the Republican side, and I think that um, 
if the if the president aggressively says on May 1st, you know, we've got to reopen this country, I agree with you that it would be best if his health officials are giving some guidance to states to the extent they need it. But I still think this is going to be managed by governors and the responses are going to vary depending on how seriously they take the threat and what they've done so far. And then uh, how, how either open or how kind of careful they want to be going forward. Scott, I'll start with you first on this one. Uh, on Monday, the president said in his, in his briefing, I have the total authority to open up this country. The total authority. And he was pushed back uh, aggressively by reporters. It was, it was a press conference which turned into a campaign rally. They had videos that the White House put together showing how, in, in their opinion, the press, the press was so wrong and wasn't giving the president proper credit. And he said a number of times that day, Scott, you'll see, you'll see, we're going to show you that I have total authority. Then 24 hours later, he puts out something that says, I'm authorizing the governors to make this decision. What happened? What I mean, how does he, was it just he got ahead of himself? He didn't study it all? Was he given poor information? Because this was a remarkable fast transition. I, I, you're asking me to explain the unexplainable. Uh, you know, we've seen this from the president before, and he, he likes to have a headline one day and change it the next. And in this particular case, I think really what a lot of his supporters are going to remember was that Take Charge Monday message. Not as much yesterday's seeming seeming back to, to a lot of people, seemingly backpedaling and saying that he'll give the governor's authority. And, you know, the truth is it was true on Monday and it was true on Tuesday and it's true today. Uh, the governors have the authority. Uh, yeah, the, the, that's pretty clear from any constitutional scholar you, you, you've seen quoted. And so I don't, I don't know where he to begin with, thought that he had authority to tell the governors what to do. What do you think, John? I concur with Scott. I think it's difficult to explain what's inexplicable because I think that the president just goes up there and riffs. And um, he said this, and what's more remarkable than that, because we're all used to that, and that's been the way that he has operated even before he was elected president of the United States, is that formerly... Uh, conservative um, constitutionalists like Mike Pence, not in agreement, and in effect, they reversed themselves completely from positions that they held when Barack Obama was president of the United States. So there's no one within his inner circle who is disagreeing with him, standing up to him, and only, I think, when he had so much outside pushback did he, in effect, temper his comment by, again, saying that he authorizes it at this point? But I don't think this was a well-thought-out, prescribed attempt, you know, to uh, circumvent the Constitution. I don't even think he thinks about it. I just think he goes up there and mm -hmm. talks, and that's what's going to yeah. happen when you try to go on television for two-plus hours every day. And today also brought the news from the New York Times, a remarkable scoop that he had stopped by the White House Situation Room during the whole pandemic and had suggested, in all seriousness, that he begin a 
two-hour radio show every day. Where he would, he himself would be on there taking calls, calls that were not screened, and he was going to do this every single day. It's, um, it's amazing that he would think that this is an appropriate use of his time and of the platform of the presidency. And reportedly, he only decided not to do right. this because he didn't want to compete with his friend Rush Limbaugh. And so he backed off from the idea. You know, we're working on the editorial board right now, an editorial coming up about Germany's response. And let me give you this as a comparison. You think about how ubiquitous the President of the United States has been on television talking about this. In her 15-plus years as Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel makes an annual Christmas address. That's what the German chancellors have done, regardless of which party they come from. She has only made one non-Christmas address from their equivalent of the Oval Office, and it was regarding the pandemic. So it was remarkable in that that really concentrated the minds of Germans, brought about remarkable unity across political parties and society, and they've had a much more aggressive and much more successful response to the pandemic. And Sometimes less is more, and I think in Germany that's clearly been the case. And, Scott, I would say this. Um, I'm glad that we have the task force briefings on a regular basis. They just don't need to go two hours with the president riffing and going down rabbit holes that either are compelling, they're bizarre, you love, you hate. And I don't even think when they go that long, they really— help him outside of his true core. And and you see a lot of his supporters who are more seasoned say, have the president come out for 10 minutes and then he can leave, he can defer to others, and that would be a better way to go. But the story John talked about, I was literally just going there with you guys, that shows again where he thinks, Scott, he is his best messenger. And it's not Pence, it's not Fauci, it's him. He's the reason why. And he's not going to back off. There, there's a reason why he just had a press secretary who left after, uh, I think, a full year in the job without ever having briefed the press. Yeah, right. Um, and that's your point, Chad, that he, he does believe he's his best messenger. And, uh, you know, he's uh, become president of the United States because of that. So it's it's a little bit difficult to argue that that's not the correct yeah. strategy for right. him. But I do think. This is a really different situation. This is a this is a, a global healthcare crisis, and daily we see the horror stories and, and the tragedy play out in our uh, media. And there are people dying, and so the the campaigning. And you mentioned before that the news conferences come off as rally or the, the one on Monday came off like a campaign rally. I actually think they all pretty much do. And um, I'm not sure that's going to play very well over time. Hang on, uh, gentlemen. We'll take a pause, come back. We'll talk about uh, Joe Biden, the uh, endorsement of a number of people, including Barack Obama, and also the New York Times story on Joe Biden uh, about a sexual assault which took place almost 30 years ago, how the Times played the story and some of the criticism the Times has received so far. Playing politics with John Rash, Scott Gillespie, and Chad Hartman here on CCO. 
Okay, I'm here for this, Cook. I thought you would be. Because um, I think of the many Springsteen hits, I think Glory Days to me is overrated. We're playing folks covering Bruce. Who is this? This is a guy by the name of Justin Towns Earl. So if you remember Steve Earl. Oh, that's right. It's yep, his yep. kid. And he's uh, middle named after Towns Van Zandt. So. Mm, this is really good. I thought so, yeah. Yeah. Excellent selection. Uh, playing politics continues with uh, Rash and Gillespie. Scott, you first. I'm going to give you uh, A and B. And you need to answer which endorsement matters more to Joe Biden becoming the next president of the United States. I'll put him in this category. A is Barack Obama, still the most popular Democrat in America, and B is the combination of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Which one is more vital to Joe Biden's victory, if that should happen? Wow. Well, I've got to be, uh, I've got to go with A and Obama. Certainly expected, but still carries with him that weight uh, of of having won two presidential elections and being the uh, certainly the uh, leader of that party uh, today. So, uh, you know, and I thought that his uh, endorsement was well done and obviously framed the Biden candidacy in the current pandemic economic collapse environment in which we are living. Um, so I'm going to go with him, although obviously I know what you're getting at with mm-hmm. Warren and uh, right. and Sanders. John, I, I would say it's B, and I understand what a brilliant uh, political campaign of Barack Obama is. Put aside where they agree with his policies, but as communicator, the list of, since 1980 is Reagan, Clinton, Obama. We're done at that level. Trump is, is is a different type of communicator, but as far as wanting somebody to help you, Obama's brilliant that. I still think an enormous part of this election, if Biden is going to pull off the upset, and right now, personally, I think it's an upset, you have to convince the Bernie supporters, the Warren supporters, some of those folks who never trusted Hillary and didn't vote in some of those key states to come out. I'm not going to downplay Obama, but I think the other group is, is, is more vital. What do you think? Every election is about turnout. This one especially will be given concerns over COVID-19. And so both play a prominent role in potential turnout for Vice President Biden. Specifically, Barack Obama, as Scott rightfully pointed out, is the absolute true leader of the Democratic Party and can energize the base of the party better than anyone and he clearly looks like he is going to be willing to do that as scott mentioned certainly not a surprise but well rolled out well timed and i think him holding back as opposed to a liability was actually an asset for vice president biden because he went and won it on his own and doesn't doesn't look like president obama carried him over the finish line it looked like he congratulated him after he crossed it now they're going to try to campaign together at times but certainly get the base out to the polls, either by mail or at the actual voting booths. But Senator Sanders, to the degree that he is more enthusiastic in 2020 than he was in 2016 for Secretary Clinton, can make the difference, especially in these incredibly close states in the industrial Midwest. And 
a whole lot went wrong for Hillary Clinton's campaign that year, but certainly not having Bernie Sanders as enthusiastic as he can and should be was a factor. And so if he indeed will follow through, that will help Joe Biden a lot as well. I got about a minute for each one of you to answer the question that's out there in, in media circles and in political circles, how the New York Times covered <clears throat> the information from Tara Reid, who worked with Joe Biden in the 90s, on a podcast a few weeks ago. She talked about a flat-out sexual assault from Biden. The Times covered it a couple weeks later. Lengthy story. They then tweeted out some information. The Biden folks didn't like the tweet. They responded to that, and a lot of people are saying they weren't consistent and how they covered it compared to Donald Trump compared to Brett Kavanaugh. Scott, what do you think? Well, I think they were really slow to get to it after the uh, after the podcast and as the allegation surfaced. Uh, I think it if you're the New York Times, you shouldn't be settling for a comment from a spokesperson. I think you, there's got to be a way to get to, to Biden himself and get him to answer the question. And um, there is a difference in how they covered this story, these allegations, and how they cover the Kavanaugh and uh, Trump allegations—it's a clear—it's a clear difference, and it doesn't do journalism a lot of good, and it doesn't do the New York Times any good. I agree, John. What do you think? I concur with both of you, and I think it's a legitimate issue and should have been brought up sooner and examined more thoroughly from the beginning. It's out there now, um, and we'll have to see the degree that it has any traction in terms of, you know, does this turn into a bigger story at this point? Is Does the vice president eventually, as Scott rightfully suggested, need to address this in his own voice to either the New York Times or another news outlet? But I certainly don't think this is the last we'll hear about this. Gentlemen, I always enjoy it. Stay healthy, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Chad.